This is Many Windows. Welcome back. We are a podcast in which we explore stories from the wide world of education from the perspective of two educational leaders with more than 40 years of collective experience. My name is John Cassie. I'm the co-founder of Qualia, the School for Deeper Learning in Calabasas, California. I'm joined, as always, by my dear friend and co-host, Jennifer McGlemory, who is the principal of Dolores Huerta Middle School in Burbank, California. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. And I'm only going to be the principal there for about another month. Oh, so you've decided to... uh... Yep. So to, to take that step that we've been talking about privately, I'm I'm going back to school um, for school psychology. Good. And uh, you know I've got a couple of of leads on what to do for some work while I do that. Um, I'm not. I haven't quite decided. Maybe by our next episode, I'll hmm. I'll know for sure what I'm going to do for some work. I'm. I don't know. It's between Trader Joe's and Starbucks, I think. But I'll let you know. Uh, but I for sure am not going to be able to go to full time graduate school and be a middle school principal of a school of about a thousand kids. I know that right. much, and I announced right. that to my staff um just this last week that yeah. I would not be coming back next year so that was hard that's that's always hard yeah I think it was particularly hard this time because it was a real surprise to yeah. everybody yeah um it is something I've been thinking about for a couple of years right um I thought it might be coupled with a move. I was thinking about what school I was going to go to right. and so I finally made that decision and applied and got in and had to had to come to terms with the fact that I was not going to be able to continue being the principal of Dolores Huerta. So yeah, that's my breaking news, which by the time this actually is aired, will not be, be old so news. breaking, but <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it so. won't be uh it won't be a surprise at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I know that I know that you took I know that you took your time in really thinking through how you wanted to do this, right? Yeah. Uh, and that, me, that it was important to you. Yeah. It's something I've been interested in for some time and realizing that I've got probably, you know, 10 to 12 to 14 more years ahead of me of full-time <laughs> work. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been yeah. a principal for 11 years and yeah. education, this kind of leads to the topic we're going to get into today, but Education is one of the few jobs where the longer you do it, the harder it gets. Right, right. (laughs) I feel Uh, like, uh, you know, if you've done a job for 11 years, you should be able to just kind of go on autopilot, right? Well, no, no. not not in education, certainly not in administration, and certainly not given some of the challenges we've faced in the last couple of years. So- Right. I'm I'm ready for a change. I'm ready to- kind of work more deeply on individual cases, if that makes sense. That's, totally. that's what's interesting totally. to me about school psychology um, and psychology in relation to what we do in education, which is where we take a student who right. is struggling and then really dig deep using assessment to figure out why that student right. is struggling. So I'm yeah. super curious about that. I'm sure we'll have episodes as, as I'm back in school and learning more things, I'll bring those to you. Right. Right. It, it I can imagine that season five will be dominated by <laughs> questions that you're, that you're exploring as you pursue this new path for which I'm super excited for you. 
Thanks, John. Right? Yeah, you know, it is, it's not really the subject of this episode, but it is crazy how the longer you're in this profession, the more the more you have to run faster and increasingly uphill, <laughs> uh, you know, in the face of cultural and social change that if you're not really sensitive and attentive to, will just, uh, it'll be like a tidal wave. It'll, it'll, just, it'll just wash over you. And you become less and less and less and less effective because you're not learning even faster, right? Mm, mm, and mm. it's certainly true in classroom teaching. It's true in mm -hmm. administrative practice. How can you possibly mentor young faculty if you are not keeping yourself really fresh? And to do that, you really have to let your experience guide you without kind of hamstringing you into the, well, you know, we tried that in 1999 and, yeah. you know, uh, and it didn't work. And so I'm therefore confident it'll never work again. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, in that sort of administrative role, right. Or in the teaching role, well, you know, I sort of figured out how to teach that in 1986. So, I, you know, I think I'm good. I don't want to change anything. Right. Well, your kids have completely changed and the mm -hmm. society in which they're growing up has completely changed. And if you think that what worked, you know, in the Carter administration is going to mm -hmm. actually reach kids, then you're in a lot of trouble, right? Yeah, you do uh, have to. That is a big piece of it is you have to keep learning and you have to stay yeah. current. Yep. Not just on educational research, but just like you said, on societal trends and changes right. and right. how oh, we just... Um, at, had a speaker come in at school who's talks about raising digital natives. Yeah. And we've talked about that you and I yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. And I, it just keeps hitting me in the face again and again with challenges that we face that, that cell phones and social media bring to us every single day in education and, yeah. and just the way that students interact with that. And, interact with information that's at their fingertips and yet they don't have the maturity to really deal with it yet. Right. Right. I think we'll come a bit to that at the end Good. of this, <clears throat> the end of this episode. Now, uh, listeners, you know that this season, Jennifer and I are tackling a number of myths that permeate our national conversation about education. And this episode is about perhaps the biggest of all the myths that education is in a state of grave existential crisis. And the country is, uh, is circling the drain and it's largely schools' fault and we're doomed, doomed, doomed <laughs> as a people and as a society. Well, friends, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to share with you that this narrative has been going on since roughly the Civil War and it began to really heat up in the early 1900s. And then after World War II, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment, uh, it reached a white hot uh, crescendo of existential moral panic, which as you know, I've said it over and over again, there's nothing an American loves more than a good moral panic. And from an educational perspective, we've been in one since the late 1950s. Mm -hmm. It's never been true, but we've been in it. And it's shaped the narrative of how we talk about education for longer than either you or I've been alive. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, Jennifer, 
I'm going to start you with a little quiz. Oh, okay. it's it's payback time, huh? It's payback. Okay. So now, uh, in one of these, uh, you know, in my research, you know, I encountered, uh, you know, a story that's talking about the myth of the perpetually in crisis education system, right? And it said, you know, if you look back a hundred years, what education was was interested in, and you know, what was being tested on, et cetera, et cetera. It's, no one, no one then could do it, and certainly no one now could do it, right? So I'm going to share with you a handful. There's dozens of questions that I could pick, but I'm going to share with you a handful of questions from an eighth grade examination for Bullitt County Schools. Now I think Bullitt County is in Kentucky, okay? From November of 1912. I'm just going to pick some questions at random to give you a flavor of what this looked like a hundred years ago, okay? Spell eccentric. E X. I, I eccentric. I should know how to spell this. Well, if you were in the eighth grade, you should. Right. Uh, let me get my pen out here really quick. Eccentric. Hmm. E X E N T R I C T. No, not even close. In fact. <laughs> It, it's like it, it's like you're trolling the question. No, uh, E C C E N T R I C, eccentric. Not even close. Never. You started spelling right. it. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. I've seen this word before. Uh, okay, uh, so that was a, that was a, one of the spelling questions. Oh, okay. Here, here's here's an arithmetic question. Okay, please. At at one dollar sixty two and a half cents a quart, what will be the cost of a pile of wood? 24 feet long, four feet wide, and six feet, three inches high. Yeah, I got to tap out on that. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a one on my paper, and that's as far as I got. <laughs> right, right. The moment, the moment it was a, a dollar sixty-two and a half. And a half. I was like, for a, okay. for a cord, I, I was, I was like, oh, that's nope, no, I can't. I don't. I'm not going to do this one. Right. Uh, parse all the words in the following sentence. John ran over the bridge. Okay, I guess I would have to know how to parse words. Right. What is parsing? Right. <laughs> yeah. What are the parts of speech? What 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 parts of speech are these words? John ran over the bridge. Parses to define the parts of. Speech. Oh, okay. See, I could actually do that. John is a noun and the subject. Yeah. Ran is the verb. Yeah. Over is a preposition. The is an article. I've forgotten the last bridge of a bridge. Uh, um, okay. Direct object. Uh, uh, predicates. Yeah. It's, it's part of the predicate. It's a, it's a noun. That's part of a prepositional phrase. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not directly the direct object because it's part of the prepositional phrase. Right. Yes. Um, through what waters would a vehicle, would a vessel pass in going to England through the Suez Canal to Manila. The Atlantic Ocean. Is that the right answer? <laughs> or I have to name all of them? <laughs> probably, probably the chant, the English Channel, I bet, is in there too. <laughs> Isn't the Suez Canal down in like South America somewhere? Oh, good Lord. Really? I don't the know. Suez Canal's in Egypt. Oh. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do this. Uh, 
uh, uh, English Channel, Atlantic Ocean, Mediterranean Sea, Red Sea, Indian Ocean, South China Sea. Wow. Hmm. That's pretty I'll, I'll have to look. Uh, what are the functions of the spinal column? They protect the nervous system and make the body stay up straight. I'll give you, I'll give you that. Half credit. Uh, half credit. <laughs> uh, name and define the three branches of the government of the United States. You should be able to get this. I think so. The executive branch, now defining is like, um, does executive things like, I'll come back to that. The judicial branch is the Supreme Court. Well, the executive branch is the president and we know everything that he does. It's real important. The executive. So I got the uh, the what was I just saying? Judicial branch is the Supreme Court. They make laws. Do they make? I think they enforce laws and the they no. I guess they don't enforce. They decide if they're constitutional or not. They uh, and the third one is legislative, which is the um, Senate and House of Representatives, the Congress. They're the ones who make laws. Let's see. There's a bill that went to Capitol Hill. So that would (laughs) they make the laws. Then who's who's in for? I mean, I really aren't the courts enforcing the laws to a certain extent? No. Um, Darn it. The uh, the executive administers the federal government and executes the laws okay um the judiciary interprets the law okay maintains the constitutional order right and the legislature makes laws now these were just a handful of questions this this 50 more okay i failed that was expected of yeah the the point is everyone would right i couldn't graduate no i feel like some people yeah but they're kind of you know nerds that's right? true. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, what that shows us is that one of the ways in which we've defined the state of crisis is to say, here's an arbitrary set of measurements that don't in and of themselves mean much. And a group of students who haven't really had anything to do with that arbitrary set of measurements doesn't do well on it. Mm. And now by that, we can establish that there's a national crisis. The whole thing is ridiculous, right? Because the, 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 the evidence supporting it is not sound, right? Well, I know anytime I help an eighth grader study for their social science final, you know, I realize how many details about American history I don't even know. Right, right. And, you know, we we care at, to the great detriment of a democratic society. We care less and less and less about those questions when, in fact, we ought to care more about them. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll come, we'll come to that sort of at the end of the, at the, end of the discussion. But the, the modern shape and structure of this crisis argument comes from Soviet Union launching Sputnik 1 mm-hmm. in 1957, okay? 
the the Soviet Union launching the first artificial satellite into space when the Eisenhower administration was pretty confident that the U.S. would beat them, okay, uh, triggered uh, in extraordinary na national angst mm -hmm. about what that could mean, right? Because it was perceived that the Soviet Union was hopelessly behind and by virtue of being communist and totalitarian, there's no way that that system could possibly overcome American ingenuity. Well, wait a minute, maybe American ingenuity isn't all it was cracked up to be, okay? And, you know, there's some statistic that said in the first, in the first, three, first three weeks after Sputnik, uh, the, the New York Times ran you know, 10 stories a day on Sputnik and education and the crisis and the fact that the country is doomed. And you know, the New York Times has always been the country's newspaper of record. So if they're in a panic, everyone else gets worked up as well, right? right. Okay, so what, what Eisenhower said after Sputnik 1 and then Sputnik 2 were launched, well, you know, he says uh, in 1958, you know, we need scientists in the 10 years ahead. So scrutinize your school's curriculum and standards, then decide for yourself whether they meet the stern demands of the era we're entering, okay? Now, the narrative of Sputnik and being behind, this is where the being behind narrative and all this comes mm -hmm. from, right? And you see this all the time. In national, uh, in international uh, measurement charts showing math skills, once again, the United States finishes 47th behind Mauritania and ahead of the Central African Republic. What is going on in this country, right? Why is Finland so high and the Singaporeans, you know, this kind of thing, right? It all stems from this initiation of this narrative, right? And it connects to American exceptionalism, right? Our sense yeah. that we're we're some kind of a unique, uh, you know, a unique experiment in the history of human humankind, right? And, and if we're our not in competitiveness, totally. which I think is directly um, in, uh, in relation to capitalism, right. is competitive by nature. And right. So what you get from this is a piece of legislation called the National Defense Education Act of 1958. Mm -hmm. And the NDEA is interesting because it sets into motion certain things that are now part of our, of our normal narrative. Mm. Okay? It's very concerned about math and science programming. Okay? So it pours immense amounts of money into math and science as the preeminent disciplines to maintain a national competitive edge, okay? But it, not just that, it also provides a great deal of money for foreign language development. Hmm. Okay? Um, and it explicitly excludes those languages like Latin and Greek that are not, you know, sort of germane to a, a national security crisis narrative, right? This is the first piece of legislation in the United States that aims to, that calls out the need to identify gifted and talented students and to find okay. some way to program for them, hmm. okay? Uh, it creates a directive to think about ways to integrate technology into education, um, which, you know, had never been 
really a, you know, a thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was educated in the, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, and I saw the, the result of that, you know, all over, you know, every school that I was in. Yeah. I mean, we had access, I had access to an Apple IIc in 1978, hmm. right? My high school had a mainframe computer in its computer science class, right? Mm -hmm. And I was doing proper coding in 1983, right? Um, because of these funds, right? Um, and it, it created uh, uh, area studies programs, right? To understand, you know, Latin America conceptually and, uh, you know, Central Europe and Africa and things like that, which helps to explain how universities have created many of these programs, you know, with federal funds and, um, uh, and, the the emergence of new ways of thinking about global problems also comes from this, right? But as is often the case in the United States, right? It's it's a four year law, and parallel to it is the creation of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, right? NASA in the '60s soaks up immense amounts of funding um, and brings you know a lot of the scientific establishment in the United States together to ensure that the, the question of the moon is not answered in the Soviets' favor, right? And this of is, course, they never get there, right? This is where the space race starts, right? Precisely, right? Yeah, this is all space race stuff, right? Okay, so we have all of that. And, you know, it isn't sustained, okay? So funding goes sort of dry and attention sort of goes to other things, right? The 1960s, you know, you've got NASA, you've got major social disruptions in the United States, you've got Vietnam, all of these things divert attention. Then uh, in 1983, in the middle of the Reagan administration, a report of the National Commission on Excellence in Education is released. It's called a nation at risk. This I remember. Yeah, nation at risk. Yeah, we, we talked still about still referenced, it. right? Yeah, it's still referenced, right? Um, it is. It sort of doubles down on a lot of the Sputnik stuff, and it focuses ever more on workforce development. Okay, Eisenhower isn't so much interested in workforce development as he is in building up the national character. Okay. Hmm. Um, and a nation at risk, uh, you know, says, quote, uh, ed education in America is giving rise to a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future, you know, as a nation and a people. But it's framed as workforce development. OK. Uh, and it says, you know, look, uh, since the mid 1960s, SAT scores have dropped. Uh, you know, 50 points in the verbal section, 40 points in the mathematics section. Um, students can't draw inferences. They can't write persuasively. They can't solve mathematical problems in multiple steps. They, they, can't, they can't accomplish basic tasks, okay? And they made, uh, they made a lot of recommendations. Some of these are going to ring true for you, okay? Okay. Okay. Uh, High schools should offer uh, or expect 
students graduating to complete four years of English, mm. three years of math, three years of science, three years of social studies, a half year of computer science, and they should start foreign language in the elementary grades. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that is basically A through G in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right. Right. That this will sound to anyone in education like, well, that's just a high school curriculum, right? Well, it kind of wasn't before a nation at risk, mm -hmm. right? So many schools adopted this, this strategy, right? Um, it, uh, it wanted uh, the bringing in of standards-based uh, education. That did not happen with a nation at risk. Uh, far more money is needed, according mm -hmm. to this report, right? To meet the needs of gifted and talented, back to gifted and talented again, socioeconomically disadvantaged minority groups, language minority students, um, and that the federal government needs to ensure compliance with constitutional and civil rights and uh, provide student financial assistance throughout the entirety of the, uh, the span of, of, uh, of education, right? Starting in kindergarten, continuing through, through graduate school, right? Um, huge problems with this report, regrettably, right? The SAT, the evidence that they cite to show that the country is in ruins, just like the last episode that we had, you know, the, the, the evidence doesn't hold up. Right. Like, you know, you do your basic statistics and then you do your more advanced statistics. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, if you, if you, if you read the statistics in a way that serves your agenda, it looks that way, but it's very easy to slice them slightly differently and they don't show anything that you say, right? Mm. Um, the, the commission had only one educator of the 13 people on it. Most of the people on it were businessmen and conservative activists and you know, um, federal administrators, people who don't know anything about education. So naturally, where do they say the problem is? Lazy students, incompetent mm -hmm. faculty, corrupt school administrators, right? And they don't look at any of the other things that might actually be going on in the broader culture that are much harder to address, right? So let's throw money at and attention to the one place where probably there isn't an issue, right? Yeah. Um, and so that kind of goes nowhere, right? Uh, no child left behind, <laughs> right? Yep. And its successor, the Every Student Succeeds Act of 2015. Now, Jennifer, I'm not in public, so I don't have a lot of, the No Child Left Behind Act didn't really Im impact me in any particular way. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how, how you saw its impact in, you know, in your work, because it's about standards-based reform and basic skill assessments and adequate yearly progress and, you know, well-intentioned, but fatally wrong. Yeah, this was what I think of when I think of No Child Left Behind initially is just the teeth behind it that actually did impact schools, low-performing right. schools, fear of being in program improvement if you didn't make your your um adequate yearly progress right that that was set up when this was initially passed and it, if you were a middle range uh district that had decent test scores 
Right. You were expected to grow by significant leaps and bounds each year. And it became very difficult to hit these targets. And right. then if you had a couple of years of not being able to hit these arbitrary targets that were set up, like you said, by a group of people who aren't actually educators, right. then you, it was literally public shaming. So right. scores were published in newspapers, um, schools that were in program improvement had to send out letters to all of the parents saying, uh, your school is in program improvement, then this gives you the right to uh, move to a different school right. district. Um, right. So there's funding right there is right. a way that it's tied. And then if you got to year six or seven, of program improvement, the state could take you over. And it did actually take over a few districts in right. Southern California, yep. um, Compton most most famously, I think. Okay. Um, and, and this happened all over the country. Yeah. But, but yeah, it I, happened here in Southern California as well. I, I just remember um, happening to some of our neighboring districts and even our own schools, schools that I worked at and schools in our district that were in program improvement and principals that, that were just so stressed about test scores and because if we didn't meet these um, these numbers, then, you know, we would be in the next year and then more, um, you know, more punishment right. uh, was coming down and right. not a lot of support necessarily. Generally not that much, mm -hmm. right? Mostly just finger wagging mm -hmm. and make do and all those students who left you deprive you of more funds, but figure it out, right? Uh, yeah, and if you and think about, so the, the goal was supposedly, I think it was by 2014, 100% of students were going to be uh, proficient in English right. and math. That was the, That's what that was we, the stated goal. The, the numbers, the targets that we were supposed to hit were to get us to that point. Um, however, it didn't really take into account, um, you know, students with disabilities, English learners, right. uh, students who came to us not proficient in in English language and maybe not even proficient in their home language. Um, and I also remember that. So the people that would take advantage of of this option to move out of the district, of course, are the more savvy politically parents, often wealthier parents, often high achieving kids. So right. they were the ones leaving the district. So how is that district going to improve their score when you have some of your best and brightest leaving because right. of the shame of program improvement? Right, right. All of this is going on while the economy is growing the labor force is growing. Mm -hmm. Young people are engaged in <clears throat> creative, innovative, interesting work. <clears throat> All of this is going on while major corporations uh, of the legacy era are trying to find ways to recast themselves for an age of technology and where technology companies are increasingly being founded in ever more increasing numbers by, uh, by entrepreneurially minded mm -hmm. Americans 
who are leveraging not just their own resources, but their cleverness and transforming the country, right? So you've got all of this energy being deployed on the most narrow Mm. concern, right? Mm -hmm. Reading and math scores, right? Mm -hmm. When in fact, all of the energy that's driving the growth in the economy is coming from innovative technological slash arts slash elective kind of programs, right? right. right? That these programs don't care anything about, right? They're, They're proposing that the country is in a state of fatal existential crisis when for those people who are able to work within the system as designed, they're going from strength to strength, mm-hmm. okay? And many of them accomplish that by stepping out of the system of education that these laws are trying to codify and control, okay? And it creates a, it creates a very warped picture of what the state of learning looks like, not the industry of education, but what learning looks like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the tests that uh, we were all, that the students were all evaluated on for these scores and right. percentages right. were more like the test that you gave me at the beginning of this episode, which is kind of a list of facts. Right. The, at least in California, the California standards tests had taken the standards and um, made multiple choice questions out of them. So really the only kind of questions that you can ask in a multiple choice format are just simple rote memory, uh, which if you, you know, if you had a study guide for it and could just study those facts that you were going to be tested on, like I could have done okay on our on our assessment, if you had just given me a study guide that I could have reviewed um, right. before the test, but but the whole idea was we had no idea. You had to really go in depth on every single standard and nuance, and make sure the kids had all of those facts memorized for right. the standards test. Right. So uh, with the Common Core coming in, that has has been re. Um, has, reconstructed the tests now have been reconstructed differently right, right. um one one critic of uh, the kind of no child left behind uh process said something like this despite how well intentioned it was did anyone really think that the federal government could legislate that by 2014, all children would be above average. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not like Wobegon here, people, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it doesn't, it, 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 it can't, it can't achieve its goals. Oh, and by the way, it's, it's obsessive focus in uh, standards with regard to reading and mathematics as defined in a way that would be accessible and understandable to a teacher in 1912 hmm. goes back to the point that the people making policy in these areas don't know anything about children learning the process of learning. And it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are. You and I both know that 
the most important thing in establishing whether a student is going to be successful is the relationships they have with their teachers. And those relationships are across a unmeasurably complicated spectrum where some students are going to really resonate with teachers that other students don't resonate with Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And so you want a whole bunch of different angles and takes so that everyone will get a little bit of something, right? What you and I both know is that what we're going to need to do in the 21st century is find a path to personalization. Right. So that there are the means and the will to educate you into your greatness, which requires resources A, B, and C. To to educate me into mine requires resources D, Mm -hmm. E, F. Yeah, just so many more options. Right, right. It's the opposite of what we've been doing, right? Um, So the, the the state of young people, the capacity of millennials who have been dealt nothing but a raw deal since they achieved adulthood. Mm-hmm. They've had nothing but a raw deal, okay? The fact that they remain resilient, they're providing interesting leadership, they are, uh, they're providing uh, visionary um, uh, change in the industries that they are increasingly taking leadership of is a really good sign. Mm -hmm. Um, Generation Z, right, who are now starting to enter college and universities and, you know, they, they they have developed a voice and capacity for activism. Yes. That would make Generation X uh, you know, ex- explode if, you know, if I got anywhere near any of those kids doing their activism, right? You know, because Generation X is so beat down and cynical, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you know. And they they just seem to be so much more aware of their own mental health. Right. Um, the, the concerns they have right. around right. mental health, right. I think goes hand in hand with that. Yep. Social uh, justice as well, you know, uh, as a generation, uh, they're more social, socially justice minded. And yep. there's one point before we get too far away from this, I want to say this one tie together this thought. So when we were in this time of No Child Left Behind, the money that we got in education was tied to remediation and intervention. So you missed your reading and math targets. Here is some money that is specifically to um, give remediation in reading and math. To your point though, John, that took money away from building other programs that engaged students that allowed them to learn reading and math through other avenues, such as computer science, drama, musical theater, you know, all of the electives that you can think of, you're using reading and math and many of them in a much more um, innovative way, but it cut funding to those kind of programs or it limited our ability to expand those programs because the, the, the funding was earmarked. And we talked about learning loss and I fear that that's going to happen again, or is already happening now 
that this these funds that are tied to learning loss or this perception right. of learning loss is ultimately going to have again that negative impact of earmarking our funds for very narrow um, classes that right. kids don't even want to be in. <laughs> right. Right. I right. think about this on a real uh, small scale at my own school. Am I going to run a math intervention class for kids that are behind in math that if they're in that class, they're not going to get to take an elective of their choice? Right. The answer increasingly is no. So, yeah, that's exactly what I've I've done over the years is I've stopped offering those in-school intervention classes because the students that would be placed in those classes need that other elective that they get to choose that is more creative that hopefully is what ties them a little more to the school and gets them excited about coming to school in the first place right 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 uh when we think about the narrative of education is in a state of perpetual crisis Mm. there is some truth to it but it's never what is being legislated to. Mm. Okay. There is some truth to it, but it's never, we never ever talk about what we actually should be talking about. Right. And these laws and this, this, this work that's been done by this country, again, Sputnik one is 1957. Yeah. That's six, that's like 65 years ago. Right. Someone born in 1957 is going to retire this year. Mm-hmm. All of our national energy on education has been spent in the same framework of panic. And it's caused us to direct our energy and, and resources mm-hmm. totally in the wrong direction. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, Generation X kids, slightly more pliable, you know, millennial students uh, uh, starting to push. Generation Z students, they're not putting up with it, right? They simply That's will not right. do it right? They will not do it, right? And so in part, I think the, the actual emerging crisis that may, or the, the, the actual crisis that may be emerging, it's a better way to put this, relates to the conservative culture war that's being waged in schools, mm-hmm. particularly ones in the South or ones governed by Republicans, mm-hmm. right, over questions of what is appropriate to teach, right? Yeah. And this in, in part comes from the fact that you've got baby boomer and Generation X leaders looking at what Generation Z students are doing and expect and saying, well, we don't want you to do those things. Yeah. The backlash is going to be the failure of schools to have any impact on these kids' lives or where they do have impact to have it in a way that leaves students in a democratic society completely unable to function within that democratic society because what they have been educated is a, uh, is a story that does not conform to reality. And if you can't process reality, how can you possibly cope with the problems that are coming? That is potentially a problem that 
is emerging, mm-hmm. right? Again, the effort of the powerful is exacerbating something that isn't right. But while that is happening, the young people in the country are just moving in another direction, right? So we'll see what where their leadership takes them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if if we've been if we've been laboring throughout the end of the industrial age and the beginning of the information age under a panic narrative about an education system in crisis that never really was, at least not in the ways that it was described, right? If we look forward the next 15 or 20 years, Jennifer, we may actually be seeing a real crisis Mm. starting to emerge, right? That our instincts and our intentions, our practices as a country, given the last 65 years, suggests we're not ready we're not ready to deal with, right? Definitely. And I want to I take the conversation in two directions. Okay. So I read an article called 20 Reasons for the Failure of the Education System written by a former university dean and K-12 teacher called Matthew Lynch. He writes for and runs the, the, the edvocate.org. It's, a, uh, it's an education, um, an online newspaper, okay? Okay. Now, I'm going to link to the show, uh, to the article in the show notes. So I'm not going to talk about a million things. I don't talk about all 20. We'd be here for six hours, right? But here are three or four things that he raises that I think suggest or point to an emerging crisis as the country moves completely out of industrialization and into right. a fully information age society, which is essentially what um, the generation after Z, who is now entering mm-hmm. primary school, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, the Zs, they're, they're they're done. We're already in the next generation. Yes. Them, right. Yeah. So the, the I, I've heard I've heard them called the iGen. You know, like iPhone generation oh, yeah. iGen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it is. It's just. It's very simply put, kids who grow up with all the information in the world, all the facts in the in the right. world available at their fingertips. So even those California standards tests that we were giving. 10 and 20 years ago, the relevance of making students learn facts that could very easily just be Googled uh, is, is the relevance is lost, particularly on, on the students. Why do I have to memorize this when I can just look it up? But there are some other, I'm sure this is what you want to get into, John. There are some other issues that come up as we're transitioning, um, into this new era of an information age where all information is available all the time, but do we know what to do with it and how to evaluate it? Right, right. That my, my last point will sort of speak to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, of his 20, okay, uh, I think uh, here are three or four that, 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 that resonate with me. Okay. Um, schools are overcrowded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. Let me say something about that. Yeah. Is I wonder about just the size of the schools we're building. So whether 100%. or not, right. Whether or not they're actually overcrowded, meaning there's too many kids for the building that was built. I feel like we're building buildings, building. 
for four (laughs) schools to be, particularly high schools, to hold 3,000 students. And I don't think any school should have 3,000 students. Like, I would love to see smaller schools everywhere, right? And particularly in high schools. But I I understand why it's been this way. But yeah, that's... I, I would I would say that's a secondary point to overcrowding is just maybe just no you totally you totally uh, anticipated where no it's not what it's not what he's talking okay. about but it's what I think we should talk about right yeah you're you're right okay if you want to educate for a 21st century society you have to educate individual children and young adults. You can't batch process mm-hmm. anymore. You could do that in industrialization and get something at the end that the society we had designed could accommodate itself to. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And the more we do it, the more we're going to create a social crisis. Okay. Now, if you choose to build six high schools for 500 rather than one high school for 3000, that's more expensive. Well, and the other, I think the other issue, the reason it's, it's has happened the way it has, has to do with this, this personalization, trying to offer many different elective type classes. So the reality is, okay, I want to, offer a wide variety of elective options. I can think of some that our high schools have small engines, wood shop, you know, for different levels of photography, all kinds of different levels of technology, broadcast journalism, you know, so in order to offer all of these things, um, you need teachers who can teach them. And if you're going to hire full-time teachers, they need to be able to teach five classes a day to be a full-time teacher. Mm-hmm. So to have enough classes of wood shop to, to fill for 150 students, right. um, you know, you, then you've got to start with 2,500, 3,000 kids to find yeah. 150 that want to take wood shop that year. Right. So we have to, we would have to fundamentally rethink some of our credentialing Right. Um, some of the ways that we pay teachers, bringing in more um, community experts, trade experts. Right. Um, there is there's there's, uh, you know, CTE, career and technical education types right. of credentials. They still just require a lot of effort. And the payoff, I'm hoping you're going to get to this at some point too. the payoff for the person who's going to leave their trade for a certain amount of time each day to teach a class what they're going to make in return is not enough to lure them away. De- yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Matthew Lynch talks about the yearly spending in the education sector mm-hmm. uh, in most states has dropped in the last 15 years. Right. And I regret uh, for those people who want to spend less that the solution is is offered by Finland, okay? Train more aggressively and more innovatively your core staff. Raise their social profile hmm. by starting them at a salary 
that you'd start a general practitioner. Right. Or, you know, a lawyer at, right? Yeah, yeah. six yeah. figures out of the yeah. gate, right? And we've never demonstrated any interest as a society in paying educators uh, the full value of what they're worth, right? Yeah. Um, so why would, why, why, would, why would we change now? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, we have to. Yeah, that's got to be one of the major crises that's coming up is just a lack of people who are interested in doing this work anymore. Right, right. So because teacher training, it goes back, Jennifer, to the point that we said about each other. I know. That, that, we, that we, have to, uh, we have to grind here, yeah. right, in order to stay, to stay effective, right? Well, teacher training programs are run by people who are our age. Yeah. Right? And if they're not run by people our age who are profoundly innovative, in the way of thinking, then they're turning out teachers who are better suited for the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And that's another problem that Lynch cites and that I think is a, you know, is a real problem, right? Yeah. <clears throat> right. Uh, he talks about the value of uh, year round schools, mm-hmm. uh, yes. you know, or, you know, you, 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 you take multiple shorter vacations with rather than one long one. Um, he talks about the fact that we we live in a, a framework where digital literacies are being developed with educators not contributing to the conversation because mm. we're still trying to figure out what they are. Mm-hmm. And that's taking place within the context of really poor digital equity. Mm. We saw a lot of that in the COVID era. Sure. Right. Um, and the last thing he, he raises, but I thought was interesting, was that education preparation programs don't teach neuroscience. They don't teach, you know, kind right. of brain, 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 brain-based, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brain-informed uh, practices. And I think that, to me, is an area where that innovation has to be driven in teacher training, right? Yes. Um, because we learn more and more, and it should inform more and more about what we're doing. And uh, it shouldn't take a generation for it to be informed. I just read um, Neurotribes. Oh, I know. I'm not familiar. Steve Silberman. Uh, It's basically a a history of the emergence of of autism as a diagnosis. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, How two uh, researchers, Asperger... Yep. in Austria and another guy, Connor, in the United States, uh-huh. both basically offered u- usable but not complete definitions of, of uh, what we would now call autism spectrum disorder, aspects of it within months of each other in right, like, right, right? Yes. And it was a really interesting history mm-hmm. of, uh, of autism as a, as a diagnosable thing. Right and how uh, uh, how autistic people have developed a uh, and an an internally facing culture, mm-hmm. right? That speaks to uh, a spectrum of uh, neurodiversity, a term that originates from the late nineteen nineties, right? Um, 
in ways that, you know, were very, it was a uh, very, uh, uh, very informative whole thing, you know, lots of the stuff that was in that book, I had never, mm-hmm. I'd never studied in any detail, right? And this speaks very much to this develop our neuroscience capacities, right? Right. Um, right. So, uh, you know, the article's quite interesting, talks a lot about, uh, um, uh, gender, race, mm-hmm. class issues as well that I mm-hmm. think we're going to get to down down the road in our own program. So I'm kind of leaving them for now. Um, <clears throat> to me, the emerging crisis uh, can best be centered on what is going to happen <clears throat> as artificial intelligence networks become more sophisticated. Yes. Yeah. I read a book a month ago called Robot Proof. Okay. Written by the president of Northeastern University. His name is Joseph Aoun. Okay. Now he actually cares more about higher ed and you and I care more about K-12, but he's deeply concerned that universities are well behind the curve of needing to respond to social change. Okay. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that that's true, right? That universities are either digging in on that ivory tower, Mm, right? Sure, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. calendar says 2022, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to treat this like it's 1650, (laughs) right? And and, or uh, basically turning themselves into the for-profit research arms of major corporations as they, you know, as they take all this research money that, um, that diminishes their academic integrity and independence. Okay. Mm. But what I, what I, uh, what I want to say is, look, it isn't that complicated to see that most pathways out of the emergence of artificial intelligence in our present world lead to catastrophic redistributions of work in the in the near and medium term okay right well anyone can see how uh, automation and self service right kiosks everywhere right. and as we all right. can go through our day and do many of the simple tasks ourselves and therefore don't need some of these, you know, minimum wage jobs anymore because right. we can, they can basically be done by a computer, right? Right, right. Uh, what Aoun says is that, uh, you know, a robot-proof education really has nothing to do with factual memorization, okay? It's okay. really about creating a uh, mental elasticity, hmm. uh, a creative framework of problem solving, right? which would allow you to invent or create something valuable to society, whatever it happens to be. Um, And the book talks about a kind of a new way of thinking about learning these uh, these capacities uh, and a new discipline. He calls it humanics. We're not gonna talk Hmm. about that, right? But I think that the, that the, uh, the book is well worth reading by anyone listening to this show and any, it's short, right? It's kind of a manifesto, right? Um, but he says, look, look at a couple of industries that are in, that are in real trouble, 
if this future proceeds, as it almost certainly will. Well, millions of Americans are employed in transport, truck driving, trains, et cetera. Okay. Sure. Self-driving vehicles, when they reach a point where uh, where the technology is at a level of confidence. Which we must be close on that. We're reasonably close. Call it 2030. Okay. 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 Well, if you get deep penetration of artificial intelligence into that industry, every single person presently employed in a good paying job yeah. to transport goods across the country is unemployed. Right. Now, what will happen is exactly the same thing that happened with the longshoremen industry. You know what longshoremen do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So longshoremen, up until containerization and mechanization in the 80s, there were tens of thousands, millions of jobs in, right. in uh, loading and unloading of goods in trade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, that industry is completely gone, except for the few people with a high level of training who manage the machines mm-hmm. that now do the work. Now, those jobs are even better paying. Mm-hmm. Those jobs are incredibly well paid. Right. But there's only one of them for every hundred right. jobs that went away. Right. Okay. So now you have a whole tranche of people mm-hmm. making high middle class wages. Gone. Okay. Well, the last time that happened in the auto industry and in manufacturing, general manufacturing in this country, it destroyed hundreds of millions of individuals and millions of families, right? Because you can't go from being a unionized car maker, making the equivalent of $100,000 a year to working at Target for $30,000 a year and not have it be profoundly disruptive, right? Now, the challenge with artificial intelligence is historically, these changes have been, have been uh, foisted on uh, blue collar workers. Artificial intelligence can do the same thing to white collar workers. And he says the legal profession is the one that's in greatest danger because lots and lots and lots of work done by junior lawyers is work that an AI can just as easily do. Really? Uh-huh. That's surprising. It is emerging as we speak. Okay. And you there, junior lawyer, go and find all the examples of mm-hmm. case law that say X, Y, Z. Right. You don't right. need a human to do that even now. Right. So what he's, what he's saying is, mm-hmm. look, if you think, if you think the, the disruption that this might cause in trucking is going to be socially disruptive. Imagine when the anticipating a $750 an hour career lawyers in this country who are, and we overproduce lawyers by the, uh, by the truckload. Hmm. Right? We, we, there's way, way, we, we make way too many every year for our needs, right? Imagine when those entry-level jobs for JDs, 
completely dry up because they're all replaced by auto automation, right? Mm-hmm. How do you how does how does the legal fun, how does the legal profession even function in its present form if there are no junior lawyers? Because who are you going to promote into partner? Yeah. yeah. What work are you going to give these people that justifies their expense when an AI can do it for nothing? Yeah, but then and it's re- it's a training ground as well for those correct. people. Correct. So how are you going to train your uh-huh. your lawyers, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. So it, you know, he's raising an existential question. Mm-hmm. And to me, that question is actually worthy of of being elevated to a to the notion of, well, maybe that's a crisis. Yeah. Right? But not the ones mm-hmm. that we've spent all of our energy on, right? And certainly if anything of the past of our history shows is that uh, we will spend our energies focused on the wrong things, throw money at the wrong things and leave the people who are going to be in their early adulthood in the 2030s and 40s without access uh, to the skills that we might have imparted to them. So they'll have to get them on their own. That, in some respects, is the actual crisis. That's so interesting because I think that we think of AI um, as, you know, doing, like you said, doing harm to the more to blue collar workers and that education is the solution to that problem. Don't get yourself in the situation where, you know, you have to be a grocery store checker because that job's going to go away. You know, don't get yourself into the situation where, you know, you don't have higher education and and have to become a truck driver because that job is going away, right? We don't see education being impacted. We see people who are not successful in attaining higher education as being impacted. But the example you gave that the law profession might be seriously impacted now should raise some eyebrows for people who are in education, um, particularly because I think, um, you know, lawyers and law school is so esteemed. That's a little more elite of a, of a field to go into. So right. now it's starting to encroach on um, some of our, uh, our professions that uh-huh. we hold dear in higher uh-huh. education, right? Uh-huh. Right. And look, the, the, these professions have undergone major transformation in their identities sure. in the past, yeah. but, not, but not in the last hundred years. Huh. Interesting. Right? So, and there's gotta be more things like that on the horizon that, totally. that we don't even know yet. Exactly. Right. You know, look, I, I've, I've said, I've said to students, here's, here's what, here's what I'm concerned about. I want you to be mentally flexible enough. So that in the year 2040, when you are 35, okay, and a company says, we think it would be interesting if you would be willing to come up to our newest space hotel and create a set of tourism or, uh, you know, entertainment and education opportunities for people in near Earth orbit. People are employed in education on the cruise industry. Yeah. It won't be any different. Yeah. Uh, the Voyager Space Hotel is supposed to open in 2027. It will miss that date. Okay. Let's say it misses it by a decade. 
it won't miss by a decade. But let's say it does, and it opens in 2037. I could go there. Yeah. And people who are in their 30s are going to be looking at an entirely new industry being born, mm-hmm. okay? Which will have extraordinary consequences that we're not thinking at all about because we're either obsessed with solving a crisis that wasn't real from 60 years ago, or we don't want young people to think for themselves. Mm. So we're going to create curricula and laws that basically criminalize speech. And we're going to engage in culture war, older people against younger, generational warfare, at the cost of what our creative capacity has so little to, you know, we, we have only so much energy to give. And if we're going to spend it um, saying you can't teach about slavery because it might make people feel bad. Yeah. And you can't let, you can't, you know, we've got to really have a big fight here over whether we're going to, uh, you know, a student says, don't call me name X, call me name Y. Let's spend all of our time talking about that. Um, well, those are things that societies that decline do. Yeah, right. We're really and, missing the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love ending on a high note. Yeah, now I'm oh. sad. No. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, you know, li- listeners, a bit. Super keen to hear your feedback, thoughts. I'm sure there's lots of perspectives that are not ours, right? You know, on this, and uh, you know, I look forward to you know to hearing them. And uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with uh, you know uh, our next myth. Uh, Jennifer and I've got two or three in the in the pipeline. I'm not sure where we're going to go next, but this is the this was the most forty thousand foot example, right? This is our smart episode. We always each season have a smart episode led by John Cassie. Um, You're very so. Good. This is this is that one as as evidenced by the quiz I had to take and failed miserably <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's kind of nice that 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 uh, that we started with the quiz that you failed rather than the quizzes that I perpetually fail when you when you surprised me with them. You did this to me on episode one. I'll remind you. Okay, but mine one. were fun. Mine weren't showing. My... <laughs> I feel fun. like a, I'm like the Wizard of Oz. You just pulled the curtain back. It's just some little sad old man behind right. the controls in my brain. <laughs> right. Pay no attention to me. I don't know anything. Yeah. Um, so thanks for listening, folks. And uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye, John. Bye, everybody. Bye, Jen.